I really want people to center platonic relationships in their lives and to really dig deeper into how we can support one another better and really show up for one another, but also allow other people to show up for us. Because I think a lot of us find ourselves as like the go-getters, kind of the one who is checking on other people. But I also really think it's important for us to be able to ask for help and allow ourselves to be in spaces of vulnerability with one another. So have you ever wondered why you sometimes feel so isolated and alone, even among friends and family? Why are we troubled by a seeming paradox, longing for human connection, yet riddled with feelings of loneliness? And is there a way to truly remedy our epidemic of isolation? Well, today we're exploring the transformative power of healing in community with renowned therapist, author, and speaker, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford. So in her new book, Sisterhood Heals, The Transformative Power of Healing and Community, Dr. Joy reveals how sisterhoods and healing circles can fill the void of loneliness and create a space for growth. And she spent decades helping clients transform pain into liberation through group therapy, empowering Black women through Therapy for Black Girls, an organization focused on improving mental health outcomes for Black girls and women, and gathering online communities through her popular Three for Thursday sessions. And her really insightful perspective, it draws from both clinical experience treating clients and therapy groups, as well as her personal experience of sisterhood, nourished all the way back from the time on her grandparents' porch. But she points out that many of the dynamics that she sees in her group sessions, they actually apply to our everyday circles of friends and family and colleagues. With simple awareness and openness, she says we can transform how we connect and experience a profound sense of belonging, which we all need more of these days. In our conversation, Dr. Joy shares lessons from therapy groups on how to build safe psychological containers that unleash the power of vulnerability and connection. She identifies factors critical for healthy sisterhoods, from holding space to managing conflict, and issues an important invitation to center platonic relationships in our lives and create communities where we can support, know, and be known by each other. So many of us hunger for real connection beyond the surface levels in modern life. So join us as we dive into loneliness and sisterhood, overcoming barriers within groups, navigating conflict, and the surprising places meaningful connection can emerge. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. 
hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert. This season is all about individualized education plans or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So you and I were in conversation a chunk of years back, and wow, has the world changed since then. You know, as we have this conversation, literally the day before we're recording, maybe a couple of days before, the Surgeon General in the U.S. releases a report entitled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. So it would be tempting to point to the last three years, to the pandemic, as the source of this. And and for sure, I think you would agree, it's deep in the problem. But this problem has been around for a lot longer than the last three years. I'd love your take on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. I saw that as well. And I thought it was very serious. I mean, you know, the Surgeon General has been kind of talking about this for some years now. He has his own book around loneliness and the importance of connecting. But for him to issue an advisory to me indicates this is something that we should be paying attention to. And he even talked about, you know, of course, the past several years, you know, during the pandemic has really made social connection much more difficult. But even before that, I think a lot of people were struggling to either find new connections or maintain the ones that they had. And it is something that's really important for us to pay attention to, not just because it feels good to spend time with people who are important to us, but because they're also very practical and tangible implications for our health. So there's research that talks about isolation and disconnection being as lethal as smoking cigarettes daily, you know. And so I think it is something that we really need to pay attention to how in very large and small ways we can make sure that we're connecting with one another. Yeah, I mean, the health outcomes, I think, was probably a big surprise for people. And I think people who've been paying attention to some of the research that's unfolded in the last decade have seen it. But to see it all summed up and to realize this is not just about the feeling of loneliness or the feeling of isolation, it has really strongly correlated outcomes in our mental health, in our physical health, and our disease risk. Yes. Literally being, I mean, as you just described, literally being lonely is has the equivalent effect on our health of I think it was smoking fifteen cigarettes a day, something mm-hmm. like this, which is kind of mind boggling when right. we think about it. And yet I feel like it's not something that we center as we devote energy to it in any meaningful way. Is that your take also? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I think that there is a lot of attention paid to like romantic relationships, right? Like there are so many lists, so many books, so many articles about, you know, how to find a partner, how to, you know, keep the relationship going. But I don't think we pay enough attention to those other really important relationships in our lives. So friendships, uh, relationships with coworkers, you know, just those kind of auxiliary connections we have with, you know, people we see when we're in the grocery store or when we're at the post office, like all of those things are really meaningful, but I think we don't pay attention to and don't center those things as much as we really ought to be. 
No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Curious your take on this also, the distinction between being alone and being lonely, because I think sometimes we confuse the two. Yeah. So I think being alone is, you know, like you maybe sitting in your room kind of reading a book and kind of you are just in the presence of yourself. And I think being lonely is a deeper kind of more ominous feeling in a way that there may be people in your life and there you may even be sitting in a room full of people but still feel very disconnected and kind of feel like you're off on an island of your own. Um, maybe that people don't really get you, that there's really no one in your corner. And I think that that is an important distinction for us to pay attention to because I think a lot of times people will have, you know, they'll be a part of teams or they'll be a part of like large groups and still have this very sinking feeling of being lonely. And I think that's something to pay attention to. Now I'm curious because, you know, um, if you think about not just in the research you've done, the speaking you've done, but you know, like a years long therapeutic practice where you're like, I'm sure this comes up, you know, on a regular basis. Do you notice when working with clients or patients that loneliness combined with actually being surrounded by people who in theory should make you less alone can people tip into a tendency of feeling of adding shame to loneliness? Oh, absolutely. That's such a beautiful question, John, because I think shame is what really magnifies a lot of concerns yeah. in our lives. Like we have this thing going on and then we like make ourselves feel bad because we feel like either we shouldn't have these things going on or that everybody else is not struggling in the same ways that we are. And I think it is important to pay attention to the fact that, you know, you don't want to be super critical and judgmental of yourself because you find yourself maybe surrounded by people, but still feeling really disconnected. I don't think that that means there's anything wrong with you. I think it is an invitation to really dig deeper and to kind of figure out, well, what's going on here? Like, why am I surrounded by so many people and still feeling so disconnected? Yeah. And I know part of your therapeutic approach also for years has been not just individual therapy, but, but group therapy, um, mm. which is, is, and I've always been curious about that. I've never actually had that experience myself. I've always been probably honestly a little bit nervous or terrified of that type of experience, as I wonder, I would imagine a lot of people would be, you know, like I'm stepping into a group of strangers and then burying my soul. Yet I know it, and we're going to broaden the conversation out, but in a therapeutic setting, I'm curious what is so compelling about that approach to you? What do you see happening that's different? Mm, group is so powerful to me. And I, I think you're right on um, in that it is terrifying <laughs> for a lot of people. You know, I mean, even if we think about, you know, just the prospect of individual therapy feels really, really scary for people. So the idea that you would now be sitting with not just one other person, but a group of maybe eight to nine other strangers and talking about some very personal things feels very, very disconcerting. But I think the magic of group is kind of what we've been talking about that very quickly, I think you recognize that you are not alone in any particular thing that you're feeling, right? So this thing that you maybe have been carrying a significant amount of shame around, you realize that maybe somebody doesn't have that same exact story, but that they feel it in a very similar way or they have, they're able to connect to the feelings that you're experiencing. And I think some of the changes and the breakthroughs that we see happen in group, it takes months, if not years, to get to an individual therapy. So oh, no I think kidding. that there's just a way of being in a room with other people where you're projecting all of your stuff onto them and they're projecting stuff onto you and it's really in the room with us so that it's easier to kind of talk about. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the notion that 
you could potentially actually move faster towards feeling better in a group context. I almost feel like it's a little counterintuitive because I think a lot of times we step into a group and we're like, well, we only, if there are eight people there, I get an eighth of the attention or an eighth of the energy. So I'm going to move eight times slower because it's just not all about me. But you're really saying the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because it's not just about you sharing what's going on with you. There's also something called vicarious learning that happens in a group, mm-hmm. right? So you may not have to share anything, but you're hearing the stories and the experiences of other people that may be very applicable to your own life. So there's a way that you could be learning and thinking about things differently just by hearing other people's experiences. What you described also is seems like there's almost like a normalizing effect. Like I would imagine as a therapist, you could say, well, you're not alone in feeling this, mm-hmm. but it's got to be different sitting in a room with seven other people and you're like checking the box. Wait, they just said the thing that I'm feeling and they said the thing. That, so maybe I'm not the weirdo here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, as therapists, sometimes we will use self-disclosure with clients to normalize those kinds of things, right? Like, oh, I found myself in that position too. But I think it is very different when like, it's not the therapist who says it and it's like the other group members. You know, it's kind of like when your parents tell you something and you're like, oh, whatever. But then your friends tell you and then you believe it. And I think the same kind of thing happens in group that you are able to connect with your peers and really believe like, oh, wow, I'm not alone in this thing that I've really been struggling with. I think it's also really fascinating because in that context, in any group dynamic, nothing happens without safety. Like there's got to be psychological safety. And the notion of being able to create psychological safety, I think people think of it, well, if I'm together with a whole bunch of friends, it's just kind of there. Mm -hmm. I think we'll dive into whether that's actually true or not. But especially in a therapeutic setting, like the ability to create psychological safety among total strangers, it's got to be a really interesting dynamic for you. I would imagine over the years is something where you're kind of trying to figure out how do we create this container more quickly so people can go deeper faster. Yeah. And I think with group therapy, it kind of starts with the pre-screening, right? So usually mm-hmm. when people into in, enter into a therapy group, there's like an interview they do with the therapist ahead of time so that they can ask any questions they have, but so that the therapist can also get a sense of like, are they ready for a group? Does this feel like somebody who's like going to participate? You know, are they going to be able to share space? You know, like all of those kinds of things. And so I think being able to have that interview with the therapist ahead of time really kind of sets them up for, okay, I know what I'm getting into. Everybody has had that same interview. And so they kind of all come in knowing that. Now, that, of course, doesn't necessarily take away the anxiety of like sitting in a room with strangers. But I do think it makes it so that it is you realize that the therapist has your best interest at heart and that there are some ground rules that everybody will be kind of paying attention to and abiding by so that the safety of the group can be established. But that doesn't mean that you want to like jump in your first session and like tell everything, though you might. Right. Like you might feel compelled to do that. But it is also okay to kind of sit back a little bit, say, pay attention to what's happening to kind of get a sense of where you fit in the group before you feel comfortable to share. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder also whether if you're coming together for a family holiday around a table, you've got decades of patterns that have been built up, some functional, some dysfunctional, (laughs) and probably the same with friends. And I wonder if part of the the magic of a, a group therapy dynamic also is that you don't have patterns to try and break there are no dysfunctional patterns to try and rewire because 
there just are no patterns yet. So you get to start fresh. Exactly. And that is a part of what makes group effective because there yeah. likely are some dysfunctional patterns. They just haven't shown up in the group because y'all yeah, are right, right, right. <laughs> together, right? And so that's probably a part of maybe what's causing you difficulty in your life outside of the group. And that really is what group is. It's really like a microcosm of society where you come without having any prior connections with people, but you still bring all of your stuff, right? So even if you don't come to the table and say, I have assertiveness issues, they are bound to pop up in the group when, you know, we realize that you never like start off group or it's really hard for you to kind of talk about yourself. Somebody is going to call that out. The next step after we talk about what happens in the group is to talk about where else in your life does this kind of pattern show up? And you're right, like when you're sitting with your family and friends, of course, there are years of patterns. But in group, those you're kind of starting all fresh, even though you're bringing your stuff with you to the group. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in 
one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. So we've been talking about this early, this group dynamic in the context of, of therapy, but a lot of your work has been to share a lot of the the ideas, the strategies, the structures of therapy more publicly, to bring people into the conversation and to offer tools and insights to them. I think it's particularly interesting that in this moment in time, on the backside of you know, like the, the Surgeon General's report, the, the years that we've been through, the feeling of isolation and loneliness, your deep experience with group and therapy, it feels like there's this moment of convergence where you're bringing it all together and saying, what's the public version of this that we can all create and step into on our own? And you're sort of leading with this notion of a structure around circles and sisterhood. So first, take me deeper into what are you actually talking about when we're talking about when you use the word sisterhood and then when you sort of like think about the construct of circles, what are we actually talking about here? Mm-hmm. It does feel very kismet, Jonathan, like the, <laughs> that all of these things are kind of converging at this time, you know, but I, I think that there is a reason behind um, some of that. But, you know, when I talk about sisterhood, I'm specifically talking about the relationships between Black women um, and not in a familiar way, right? Like your sister is your biological sister or your adopted sister, but the sisterhood that exists kind of simply because we are all Black women in these relationships that, you know, can be very close, but also just, you know, I see you in the grocery store, I see you in school, and there is like a shared understanding, there's a shared history. And my experience has been that that has been very healing for Black women. And we typically find ourselves in circles. So whether it is as a part of a knitting group or a church group, or if it is your more intimate friend group, it typically happens within a circle. And those dynamics that I just talked about that are happening in group therapy also happening in our circles. And so it felt important to talk about the things that I've learned as a therapist and somebody who has practiced group therapy and to help people understand like, hey, they are, these are some of the same dynamics happening in your life. And here's how we can use this to make the relationship stronger. Yeah. It sounds like in your life also, the notion of sisterhood and circles, it's uh, beyond your therapeutic experience. This is something that's been a part of your life just personally from the youngest days. I, I, in fantastic new book, you describe a, you know, like being on your grandparents' porch so take me all the like, because clearly you have really strong visceral memories of this experience and the role that it's played in just like who you are and who you become. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because I feel like my grandmother's porch is like the origin story for so many <laughs> <laughs> of my, you know, personal and professional kind of experiences. Um, but my mom, it grew up, you know, I grew up with six aunties. So my mom has six sisters. And so like this conversation that Black women have like on the porch, kind of, you know, paying attention to who's passing on the streets. And my grandmother's house is right across the street from a church. And so there's always some activity going on. Like, so just people watching and kind of making sense of the world through this lens of like Black women's conversations with one another has always just been fascinating, but also felt like very familiar and safe to me. And I kind of feel like a lot of that is the foundation of the work that I've done with therapy for black girls and, you know, kind of thinking about like how black women make sense of the world and how we do that with one another. And I feel like the foundation of a lot of that is my grandmother's porch. Yeah. You know, we were talking about more generally just a sense of isolation and loneliness and the role that therapy and now sort of like the sense of sisterhood and circles 
might play in that. But speak to me more directly about the experience of Black women, sort of like in culture now, and how that need is actually different and deeper, like how being in sisterhood and how coming together in circles actually solves something which is different than other people, other women might be experiencing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we can't divorce ourselves from the backdrop of what the pandemic has been. Do know, you know, that the experiences of people dying from COVID disproportionately hit black and brown communities. And so there's a there's a large sense of grief. We see lots of layoffs, lots of economic disproportion. And I think what has really happened through the pandemic is a greater sense of responsibility for one another when all of these systems that we thought would be in place to really kind of save us and, you know, to kind of that we could rely on, we have recognized or, you know, greatly or more recognized that they are not functional and that really we only have one another. And so I think, you know, there have been experiences of mutual aid and like people you know, asking for help in like paying rent or sending kids to school or, you know, paying for groceries. And I have just seen a lot of activity specifically among Black women really rallying around one another to kind of build our own systems when other systems have not been functional or, you know, available to us. And I think historically that is who Black women have been for one another. You know, I think you know, just kind of even from slave times, like it has been really other Black women who have carried each other to safety, you know, kind of been responsible for one another. And so I think the iteration we see now in pop culture, just in economics, is really just this sense of establishing our own systems because we can't rely on traditional ones. Mm. And it's interesting, obviously, middle-aged white male, um, (laughs) I step into it and what you're describing I can't experience, I'll never experience in the same way, clearly. And yet the notion of sisterhood, the notion of circles, the sort of like the fundamental construct of coming together is deeply resonant for me and is deeply resonant for a lot of people. You walk through some really interesting ideas, sort of like guideposts and keys. Like if we're going to come together and do it in a healthy way, in a functional way, in a supportive way, what really matters? You know, like what are the important things to think about and what are the dynamics to expect to unfold. So I'd love to walk through some of those. You introduced this notion of sisterhood and the four S's. So tell me about the four S's. Yeah. So the four S's of sisterhood are the kind of, I think, when I think about like the guiding themes of like what makes sisterhood so powerful and what makes it so magical, I think in a lot of ways, I think about it in terms of these four S's. Um, So four S's are that sisterhood allows us to be seen. So, you know, like we're not invisible to one another, which I think is really, really important. It allows us to soften. So there are so many places in our lives where we have to kind of put on this like really heavy armor to show up. And in sisterhood and in relationship with one another, we don't have to do that. So it allows us to soften. Um, it allows us to know more about ourselves and allows other people to to kind of know us better. So it, it allows us to have a greater sense of knowing who we are. There's a lot about us. Um, I think just generally we don't know until it, we, it shows up in relationship to one another. Um, and so I think in engaging in deep sisterhood in relationship with one another, we have a greater knowing of ourselves. And then the fourth S is that it allows us to support other people and it allows us to be supported. The way you're describing the, those four S's, it feels like they're, they're each speaking to a specific pain. If you talk about like one of the S's is being seen, well, then the pain would be not being seen or being invisible. Right. You know, to soften, I guess the assumption under that would be that like 
you feel like that outside of that circle, the safety of that circle, that sisterhood, that you've got to take on the persona of being hard, of being tough. A variety of reasons that like are very valid reasons, but there's a pain, there's a cost to that. And that like there needs to be a place where you've got to be able to drop that to be able to just breathe and be okay. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to, you know, our earlier conversation around like all of the mental health implications of loneliness, there are some very real mental health implications to this idea that we need to be like tough and strong and like on all the time. Like it's just not sustainable. But I think a lot of black women find themselves in spaces where they feel like they can't drop that armor. And I'm I'm arguing that with one another, we can create those spaces where we don't have to have that armor on all the time. Which is powerful and curative in a lot of ways. And actually speaking of the word curative, you also introduced this notion of Yolom's curative factors, um, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. Take me through this a bit. Yeah. So, you know, Irving Yalom is like a, a pioneer in group therapy. And so he has identified 12 different curative factors that really make groups work. So when I talk about wanting to introduce these ideas to the general public, I'm talking about like, here are some things that we know work in therapy groups. And here's how it might also be working in the groups that you find yourselves in with friends, coworkers, and those kinds of things. But I've also added my own curative factors that I think are specific to the work that I've seen with Black women. Um, So Irving Yalom is also not a Black woman. And so, you know, in a lot of group therapy and a lot of psychology and mental health work, of course, has not included the experiences of Black women. Like it just wasn't a part of our history. And so it felt important to add to that list factors that I think specifically resonate with Black women and in the work that I've seen also really help groups to be effective. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the history of the therapeutic side of mental health has completely excluded, I mean, it's not just mental health, but physical health also. I think the ratio of physicians in medicine is like two to 3%. Yeah. When you think about building on the work of somebody else to really make it directly resonant and relevant to the communities who you care so deeply about and have been in service of, I'm curious how you think about, okay, so how do I take this work? Acknowledge the value of it, but also acknowledge the fact that it is incomplete and figure out like what's missing from this that I feel is mission critical to bring into it. I'm curious how you actually sort of like step into that and say, how do I actually go through the process of really figuring out like what isn't here Mm. that actually is critically important? Who's forgotten and what needs to be added to this to actually make it effective? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I didn't set out (laughs) to necessarily do that. You know, of course, I I have a long history of practicing group, but it was really in the process of writing the book and working with my editor that she talked about like, okay, well, there's this list, but like, is this complete in your experience, right? Is there something different that you do with Black women? And I thought like, oh, yeah, there is. But I had never thought about like putting it on paper, like outlining like my own way of doing work and doing group with Black women. And so it really is in the process of writing the book that I thought about, well, what have I seen be different and what kinds of things maybe show up in a group of all Black women that have not shown up in other groups that I've worked on or worked with? Um, And it is through that experience that I found the other four. So you describe a set of sort of spoken and unspoken, you know, like explicit and just assumed guys or like these are the things that we want to actually explore to create a safe context for sisterhood when we come together. And you break them into four large categories. I'd love to sort of like talk a little bit about each one of those categories. The the first one is what 
you describe as holding space. And I think a lot of people have probably heard that phrase in a lot of different contexts. I think it comes up in spiritual um, language a lot these days. And some people also would probably roll their eyes when they hear the <laughs> phrase holding space. It's like, oh, please, really? But you describe it in a way which is really it sounds necessary and practical. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there would probably be a lot of eye rolling because it is one of those terms that like, you know, in some ways has kind of been largely overused, but yeah. I don't want us to like lose the spirit of what it means to be able to hold space for someone else. And what it means kind of in, you know, in plain English is like really being present in like eye to eye with someone and creating a space where they do feel like they can unload, where they do feel like they can share some of these things that they're ashamed of or that, you know, they're really struggling with in a way that demonstrates that you're really present and that you're there with them. And not in a way of like, okay, we got to fix this, right? Because I think that's where we often go is like, okay, somebody comes to us with a problem and we immediately jump into problem solving mode. But can I just sit with you in this really difficult thing? And I think that is really what it means to hold space for someone else. Yeah, I love that context, but it also brings up another thing, and you speak to this actually, which is the notion of, okay, so I get what it means to do that. I get that it's important, right? And then, so when you're stepping into a conversation, you're not always equipped to be that person to hold space because, you know, you may be going through stuff yourself. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and like, this is a point that you make in, in your writing to really understand your capacity to actually be that person at any given moment. Yeah. And I I use the example in the book about as therapists, we are kind of taught that at certain times there may be certain cases that you may not want to be able to work, may not want to work with, or may not even have the capacity to work with, right? So in your personal life, if you are struggling with marital problems or going through a divorce, you taking on a client who is contemplating divorce may be too activating for you to be able to like separate your stuff from their stuff, which means that you could be doing harm to them. And so I think when we think about holding space for friends or other people in our lives, we do have to recognize like, okay, do I have the capacity to really be non-judgmental in this situation? Can I separate myself? stuff from their stuff, you know, like, can I really just create a space where they can kind of wade through their own things without me kind of adding my own judgment or my own ideas about what I think they should do in this situation? Yeah. Do you suggest that somebody literally just sort of like ask, like you ask yourself a set of questions when you're being invited into this or inviting somebody else into sort of like a conversation that might be rich and personal and vulnerable, like to literally check in with yourself first and say, Am I actually equipped right now mm-hmm. to do this in a way that is that is healthy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, not only when we're holding space, I think there are lots of situations that invite us to really kind of do some self-assessment of like, okay, am I the right person for this? Like, can I do this well? And, you know, sometimes you find yourself like holding space for people and not that you like plan to do that. But I think being able to kind of say, you know, if you recognize in the moment, like, hey, this feels really activating for me to being able to tell that to the person, I think also creates a space of safety as opposed to you, you know, being really judgmental because you have not worked through your own things. So I think being honest about where you find yourself really can go a long way. You know, it's interesting because I wonder if some people like everything I feel like so often circles back to shame, right? Mm. I wonder if sometimes like we step into a moment like this, wanting to be that person who's ready and there and capable. But then if we check in with ourselves, we realize I'm actually not okay. Like being the person to hold this space in this moment in time. 
And then comes the shame, right? Because it's like, but I should be. I, should I love be. this person. Like I should be. They've been there for me in the right. past. Do you see this come up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And like that word should comes up yeah. a lot with shame, right? So whenever you find yourself uttering the should, could, would, that is typically like an invitation, like something's going on there that you are like putting an unnecessary amount of pressure on yourself to do something that just may not be realistic. But again, I think being able to say to your friend, you know, like, I really want to help you with this, but I am finding, you know, that I don't necessarily have the capacity or I actually don't know how to help you, but I want to be in this with you, you know, because I'm not asking people to be therapists, right? Like I don't want them to even get into the role of being therapists for their friends or other people in their circle, but can you sit with them in it? And then when it's appropriate, talk about like maybe helping them to find a therapist, right? Or giving them other resources where they can find some of that additional support. Yeah. In that context, also, you talk about um, the role of vulnerability in these conversations. And it seems like it is like that is almost like the the center of everything. Like without that, nothing happens. So mm-hmm. what do you actually, I mean, it's funny because I think vulnerability has become cut, like the word itself has become kind of part of the zeitgeist these days. But I think people use it differently also. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about vulnerability, what are you actually talking about? I'm really talking about the experience of being kind of emotionally naked with one another, right? Like, can I show you the thing that I'm really, really embarrassed about or say the thing that I don't feel like anybody else is going to understand and trust that this does not mean the end of the relationship or that you see me differently or that the relationship can continue. And I think only in really being vulnerable with one another are we able to establish some of this trust and safety that allows for relationships to flourish. Um, And and it's not a, a knock on you if you're not at that place, but I think recognizing that, you know, like, I don't know that I can be vulnerable in this relationship. And what does that mean, right? Like if you find that it is difficult for you to get to a space where you feel like you can be in discussion close like, you know, much more personal things. Does that mean that there's more work for you to do? Is there something about this dynamic that makes it that it would be difficult for you to do that? Um, You know, so I think, again, it's just an invitation for you to dig a little deeper around what is making it difficult for you to go to that place. Yeah. Do you feel like when in the context of vulnerability, like if you have a group of people who are sharing, right? One person is using words, okay, getting naked, right? Um, They're just, they're (laughs) going there, they're sharing it. That people are kind of keeping a hidden tally mm-hmm. in the group also. And it's almost like, okay, so this person just bared their soul. This person bared their soul. But that yeah. one person over there is nodding along and they will not open up on the mm-hmm. same level. And I'm wondering like what happens in that dynamic? Yeah. So I I do think sometimes that can happen. And I think that's just the nature of being in groups. Like we are paying attention to like, okay, well, is everybody kind of on an equal playing field here? Uh, But I do think it is important for you to know what your limits are in a group, right? So like I talked about before, like just because everybody else is sharing and being really, really honest doesn't mean that you won't get there, but you may not feel like you're there yet. And it's okay to honor. And it actually is important for you to honor where you find yourself. And I think when you are a part of a group, that is why um, the psychological safety and trust is important because can you establish a space where we can all go at our own pace, right? So I may feel really comfortable sharing something, but it's also okay if somebody else is not quite there yet. Now, I think if they never get there, that's a different story. But just because, you know, three people shared and one person is not feeling like they want to share doesn't necessarily mean that they're not an active or important part of the group. 
Yeah. Would you suggest, would, do you think it would be valuable um, if, you, let's say, uh, like you're that person, right? Rather than just sitting quiet and taking it in, maybe offering, like being really thoughtful and offering, you know, like your thoughts, but not sharing yourself. Do you think it, there would be value to basically just say, hey, listen, I realize that I'm actually not sharing on the level that you know, like you all are right now. And I'm aware of that. And I want you to know that I want to, and I hope to, but I'm, I'm not feeling okay going there right now. And I want you to know that it's not because I think that in any way, shape or form, I don't have to, or I'm better in any way. It's just, this is what's going on inside of me. And I want you to know, is something like that necessary? Is it constructive or helpful? Or is it? I think that that is incredibly helpful, especially if that is authentically how you're feeling in the moment, right? Because I think being able to give voice to where you are is still you sharing, right? So if you may not be sharing some super painful thing, but you're sharing in the moment, this is what's going on with me, which I think is also very vulnerable and very transparent. So, you know, you know, I think that there are different levels of sharing and I think it can be really powerful again to like talk about what's happening in the room, right? So the fact that you've heard these other people share this thing and now you're feeling like this pressure to share but you don't feel comfortable giving voice to that I think still lets people know where you are and it still allows people to feel connected to you because they know that you're paying attention and like you're thinking through where do you fit right and you're still being very actively engaged in the group yeah it's so interesting what you're describing then is sort of like you're expressing why you're not being vulnerable is itself an act of vulnerability. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So fascinating. Right. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's interesting also, you described that people tend to, to gravitate towards certain common roles within a group. Mm-hmm. And you described these four, the leader, the wallflower, firecracker, and peacemaker. Walk me through these really quickly, because I, clearly we have all either been or like been in a group with people who play in those roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important to know that these are not like absolute and you might yeah, yeah, find yeah. yourself kind of between roles and different in different groups, which I think is interesting. Um, but the wallflower is kind of the person in the group who is mostly quiet and they may not be saying a lot. But when they do speak, like everybody pays attention because it tends to be really impactful. Um, the leader of the group is kind of what a leader you would expect is kind of the person who is takes the responsibility for organizing when y'all get together. They probably are the person that hosts and like, you know, all of the details and like the stuff that really makes a group move. The leader typically kind of takes that on. The firecracker is the person who kind of will say the thing that needs to be said, but not always in the tactful kind of ways. Um, but, you know, again, those kinds of things are important for like moving a group forward. And then the peacemaker is the person where, you know, if a couple of people in the group are not talking, they are the one who's going to try to bring them together. Like, let's talk this out. Um, they're kind of the voice of reason in a group. Yeah, it's interesting. As you described the four, you know, part of what's going through my head is I could see how each one of these roles could be expressed in a way that's really healthy for the group and also in a way that's unhealthy. Like if you take even the peacemaker, right? It sounds like, well, that that's just a really healthy person to be there. Like, let's resolve this. Let's make peace. But, you know, if that impulse is driven by just a profound intolerance for uncertainty or for tough conversations and you just want it to go away. So like you, maybe there's an impulse to, to make peace when it's not time to make peace, when things naturally need to be centered and talked about and hard things need to be explored. And maybe we circle around to the peacemaking, but I wonder if there are underlying impulses for each one of these that can be both healthy and unhealthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a large part of that chapter that you're talking about really helps people to kind of think about like, okay, you found yourself in this role. Do you actually enjoy being in this role? Right. Uh And what what kind of disadvantages might you experience? Because to your point, you know, the peacemaker might be calling for peace when it really is not time for peace. But I think one of the other things that the peacemaker may find themselves doing is like trying to make peace with other people because they're avoiding their own stuff. Right. So there, there's all, you know, kinds of like hidden kinds of, you know, things that you may want to pay attention to because of the role you find yourself in the group. What you're describing also, it's interesting because you're taking these dynamics from sort of a controlled group therapy and saying, like, let me share a whole bunch of guideposts and invitations and offerings out so that to create sisterhoods and circles um, that are functional and healthy. But it occurs to me, like, you've got to be relatively self-aware to keep the dynamic healthy in a group because if you're not aware of your own inner thoughts and workings and feelings, let alone you know the the group dynamic, it's hard to notice what is and isn't happening and what's real and what's not real and respond to it in a functional way. 
And isn't that the importance of like doing our work for any relationship? Yeah, right. right? You know, I, I think that there is a level of like self-awareness Um, that, of course, you know, not everybody has. But I think to make most relationships work and kind of make them function, it really does require us to kind of be present and aware of like what we're bringing to the table and like how we get activated by certain things and whether we shut down or whether we, you know, kind of go too far. Like, I think all relationships call that from us. Um, And so, again, you know, the, the goal is not for people to kind of run their own mini therapy groups. It really is like, okay, how can you just be more aware of these things and pay attention to the fact that these dynamics exist and use them to your advantage to, you know, kind of help everybody out. And part of the awareness also is you probably start to become aware at different points of dysfunction or conflict. One of the big four topics is barriers and conflicts within a group, right? Yes. One of the things you talk about is subgrouping, which I thought was really interesting. Take me there more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in therapy groups, a lot of times there are rules around like not getting together outside of the group because all kinds of things can happen. Right. So do other members get jealous because now you're spending a lot of time with this person or are you working through your own stuff kind of when y'all are meeting for lunch as opposed to bringing it to the group? And then maybe you end up leaving the group. And so when we think about our own groups, we need to think about like, of course, we most often have separate relationships with the other people in our circles, right? Like maybe somebody you go to church with, somebody you work with, like some of that naturally happens, but it is important to think about how those kind of separate relationships impact the larger circle. And, you know, it's it's maybe impossible to stop it from happening, but it is important to pay attention to like the health of the entire circle and how that's being impacted by the individual relationships that the members have. Yeah. And because you're not going to stop you know, like seeing a friend on the side if you're going to lunch with them on a regular basis. But, <laughs> right. you know, because that's what deepening a friendship individually is about. But at the, sa- at the same time, I yeah, I do get that, you know, keeping in mind the larger context, if you're committed to sort of like meeting with a larger group on a regular basis, like how's it going to affect that and and having a respectful approach to that. You know, one of the other things that you bring up as a potential source for conflict is this notion of help rejecting which I think is fascinating. I have seen this unfold in a lot of different contexts, actually, and it can lead to so much frustration. Talk to me more about what this actually is and how it tends to unfold and what we can do about it. So the the term is like a help rejecting complainer, right? So these are the people who are often in our circles who like solicit lots of feedback. Like there maybe is always a crisis going on in their lives and the group rallies around them to like give them a lot of feedback and then they don't take the feedback. And so the, the, the cycle just kind of repeats itself. And I think that that can be really frustrating for groups because it feels like there's often a lot of energy expended for this one person without necessarily a lot of payoff for the group. And so I think it is important to be able to gently call that out for people when we recognize that there's somebody in our circle who's doing that and to be mindful of our own boundaries, right? Like if you find yourself like really exhausted because you're always giving feedback and advice to this person, that may be a signal to you that your boundaries are maybe a little too loose there and you need to kind of, you know, tighten up in terms of like the energy and the time and other resources that you're giving to this person. So that brings up another fascination of mine around this context, which is that I guess, depending on sort of like the school of therapy and what your approach is, and this extends to the domain of coaching also, a lot of the the teaching is, you know, you hold space and then your job is actually not to provide it, but it's to listen, it's to reflect, it's to mirror, and then it's to ask intelligent questions, you know, which would let somebody else sort of come to their own revelation. And 
I get that in a therapeutic context because you're trained to do that. Like that you've practiced this <laughs> thousands and thousands of hours. And right. even if you're thinking inside of your head, and I've talked to like some friends who are, who are therapists in all different schools and they're like, I kind of know, like I want to tell them exactly what to do, but I know that's not the right thing to do here. Right. In a friend context, how do you navigate that? Because actually saying like, here's what to do or like, like do this might not be the most helpful thing to say rather than just saying like, tell me more, asking questions. Yeah. And I think that that's an important skill for us to have as therapists, but I think it's an important skill for us to have, have as people in relationships also, because again, every situation does not warrant jumping into problem solving mode. Sometimes people do just want to have someone sit with them in whatever is going on. And the other thing that happens when we rush in too quickly with like answers and solutions is that the person doesn't ever develop like their own skill around decision making, right? Or kind of taking the ownership of a decision. Sometimes it is just them parroting what we said to them. And so I think we also have to think about it in terms of like, okay, if I really want to help this person, it may be helpful for me not to always rush in with answers and to allow them to kind of flex that muscle or build that muscle of making relations or making decisions for themselves. And maybe they want to check in with you about it. Like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Do you think this sounds good? Which is totally fine. But rushing in with answers, I think also inhibits them from developing that skill for themselves. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, if you don't develop that skill for yourselves, you never get that sense of esteem. Yes. That comes from saying, oh, actually, I figured this out. I figured Again, it I'm out. And I'm capable of figuring it out. Like, I don't have to constantly ask everybody else to, like, figure it out for me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. One of the other things I thought was really interesting that, that you share is important to think about it, a source of potential conflict. It is the notion of differences in values. Which I thought was really interesting because you could come together, right, as a group and share a lot of history. But sharing history doesn't necessarily mean that you see the world the same way or that you share the same values. Talk to me more about how this shows up. Yeah. And I think that there are some things that are like just differences and preferences, right? Like whether you like Coke and I like Pepsi, you know, like those, those kinds of things. But what I'm really talking about is like, are you fundamentally opposed to like who I am in the world, right? Or how I show up. And we saw this a lot during the pandemic. I think a lot of friend groups were shaken up around um, decisions to get the vaccine or not get the vaccine, decisions yeah. to mask or not mask. People who, you know, had a higher risk tolerance and were kind of still out doing things and other people who had a lower risk tolerance. And I, th I don't think people really understood like how to navigate that because in a lot of ways, those kinds of things had not entered friendship groups before. And so I think the pandemic really gave people a chance to kind of explore values and like, what does this really mean? And so I think, you know, sometimes we get to a place where we realize like a friendship may not be able to continue because we just fundamentally see the world differently in a way that clashes like with my humanity. And I think, again, the, the pandemic really brought that to light for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that really flows into a conversation that you have around life cycles with sisterhoods, with circles, with friendships, in that some are meant to last for long times and some are not. And sometimes they end, sometimes an individual friendship ends, sometimes an entire sisterhood, as, you know, like a circle dynamic ends, maybe even after years. And there's a real grief experience that happens when that comes to be. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of times we don't think about like the grief related to a friendship because 
it's not somebody dying, right? Like uh, I think a lot of our society really only has rituals for the death of someone, but there's grief we experience because of lots of different things. And so I talk about this sense of disenfranchised grief, which means that people don't take it as seriously when you lose a friendship because they feel like, oh, you have other friends or there are other people. And so then you're left with like this, this real sense of grief, just as if someone had died, but like nobody's really paying attention to it or they're not giving it the same credence. And so then you're just kind of left with all of these feelings and not sure how to make sense of it. Um, And so I think when that happens, it is really important to find somebody who's not going to make you feel ashamed because a friendship has ended and to, you know, to be able to find a, a supportive community of people who will allow you to talk through, you know, whatever you're experiencing for as long as you need to. What about the opposite problem, which is sort of like when something kind of really needs to end, but, you know, when <laughs> enough of the things that brought you together in the beginning, you know, like they're just not there anymore, yet nobody wants to be the person <laughs> yes, because that comes up, you know, and that I think is, is really dicey also. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate those moments? I think it is really hard for us as a society to say goodbyes. You know, so I talk about this in the book, like it is, but it is really important to say goodbye, to like offer yourself some sense of closure to relationships that have been important, even if you know that they are not going to continue. And so I think the tendency or, you know, some people's kind of inclination would be to just like stop calling or to like just kind of slowly ghost out of the picture. But in talking with lots of women, that kind of ghosting experience is actually far more painful than like somebody saying, you know, like, okay, this is kind of, we've come to the end of the road. Um, And so I think if you find yourself in a situation where you know you're going to have to end a friendship, it is the kindest thing for both you and the person to be able to actually say to them, whatever it is going on, right? Like, I don't feel like we see the world the same or, you know, I feel like I've been betrayed or whatever it is that's leading you to end the friendship. It's important to be able to say that to the person so that they're not left kind of making up their own stories about what happened and like what could have been different. Yeah. I feel like ghosting to a certain extent has been normalized, uh, you know, through, because so many of us stay in touch and stay in relationship on a regular basis through these asynchronous devices where like, we're not actually in conversation in real time. We're just trading messages at different times. And it's sort of, you know, it makes it easier to just kind of vanish into the background because it feels like there's a way to do it that's more socially acceptable, but I think it's not more socially acceptable. It may just be easier, but the pain, it sounds like what you're describing may even be worse. Yeah, I think a lot of people, and you know, I've been seeing even more and more conversations talking about like the pain of a friendship breakup, especially when they were ghosted. Because again, it just leaves you with all these questions and like wondering, like, what did you do wrong? Like, did I overstep? Like, you know, it's just, it just is a barrel of questions. Um, and it is never easy to end a relationship. Like nobody wants to have that awkward conversation. But again, I think you owe it to yourself and to this person who at one point did mean a lot to you to offer them some kind of resolution and like letting them know like this is where you're staying and you're moving on. Yeah. And that kind of brings us, you know, let's let's circle all the way back around. Like we can't talk about any relationships, you know, without also talking about like how do we actually start them? How do we and I think that is something that so many struggle with now. It's like, how do you actually find those new people? And in the context you're talking about, like how do you find new black and brown women to bring into a sisterhood or to bring into a circle, like more broadly how does any grown up do that? Because 
as a kid, we're just in these constructs that automatically bring us together in community with people who we share history or likeness with or but as adults, it's almost like, like we now have to proactively go and do these things. Mm-hmm. And you speak to this in, in a bunch of different ways in the book, but share some thoughts here because I think this is not just intuitive for most people. It is not. It's not. And you're right. Like when we're young, like we're in class with all these kids and so these become our friends, right? Um, and, you know, once you're older and not in college settings or education settings, it's just much more difficult. And so one thing that I suggest is to pay attention to the people who are kind of in the background of your life who could actually become maybe more of the foreground. So is there somebody that you kind of see in your Pilates class all the time and y'all exchange pleasantries, but it doesn't go much further? Or is there a mom that you see in the carpool line that, you know, you're kind of friendly with, but it doesn't go any further than carpool? And thinking about like, okay, is there an opportunity to make some of those relationships a little bit more formal, a little bit more intense? So can you say like, hey, do you want to grab a smoothie after Pilates? Or like, oh, we should really grab lunch before we head to the carpool line so that you can take some steps to maybe get to know these people a little better, but not necessarily with the expectation that they're going to be like lifelong friends. You're just kind of putting yourself out there to, you know, kind of widen your circle of people who could become close to you. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the notion of also finding places where somebody else has already done the work of gathering the people who you want to be in community with. I mean, this is exactly what you've done for years, right? With therapy for black girls, with three for Thursdays. You've created this incredible space. Tell me more about the space and how people show up in it. Yeah. So Three for Thursdays is this thing I started, I think, before the pandemic, um, but definitely became much more intense during the pandemic. Um, But every Thursday at 12 noon, we jump on Zoom so people can sign up for the Zoom link. It's a free session to participate in. And we talk about some particular topic. So we may talk and I typically have three points to share for people. So three ways to be more assertive, three things to think about as you think about spring cleaning, like whatever the topic is. I, I kind of pick random topics, but people can also suggest topics. Um, and I share the three points and then we have conversation around, you know, what resonates for people? How have they seen this work in their own lives? Um, but people also will like give us updates off previous sessions or there will be questions unrelated to the topic that people will have. And so it really has just become a very, very cool space for women to kind of get together to support one another, to laugh with one another, to hold each other accountable. Um, and it, it's just really like, I think, a glowing example of like what sisterhood actually can look like in practice because the women don't necessarily know one another beyond getting together every Thursday, but certainly some of them have gotten closer because, you know, they kind of continue to see each other in this space. And so I think it is just a great example of the kinds of spaces where you can find people who, you know, can become a part of your circle. Yeah. I love that also because it's, we're talking about gathering through technology. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have the, even though we've all been sort of trained to be much more comfortable with it over the last three years, there's still a lot of resistance. I think there's a lot of assumptions that maybe like that's not as real. Mm. And certainly it's not the same as being in person with people. But I think like what you've created, this like just stunning global community, it's proof positive that really deep, rich, powerful connections can happen in the virtual space. Don't write it off. Exactly. Yeah. I I do want people to make sure they're paying attention to being open to digital kinds of connections because you're right. Like it may not be exactly the same, but I think that there are some very powerful connections and very great relationships that can be formed even when you connect in digital spaces because it really is about the consistency. It's about like peeling back the layers, like all of those things are important and those things can happen digitally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So as we start to um, wrap our conversation, zooming the lens out a little bit, what's your big invitation? What's your big hope for people as they start to think about all the ideas that, that you've been offering? I really want people to center platonic relationships in their lives and to really dig deeper into how we can support one another better and really show up for one another, but also allow other people to show up for us. Because I think a lot of us find ourselves as like the the go-getters and kind of the one who is checking on other people. But I also really think it's important for us to be able to ask for help and allow ourselves to be in spaces of vulnerability with one another. So coming full circle, I've asked you this very same question, but it's a chunk of years ago now, and the world has changed and we've all changed. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life means to be intentional and purposeful about establishing meaningful connections with other people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation that we had with Kat Velos about making adult friendships. You'll find a link to Kat's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it? Maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.